It's podcasting time! My name's Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm just another jerk taking pride in his podcast work. That probably no one really gives a toss about, but I'm not in it for the glory. You know, all that glory and adulation that's afforded to D-list podcast hosts. Heck, I'm not even D-list. I'm probably not even in the alphabet. Maybe I'm somewhere in the syllabary. Boom! Transition with a linguistics joke! Hopefully it'll make sense once you've finished the episode. Today, let's take a trip down to Language Town. Let's talk learning Japanese. I think I'm learning Japanese. I really think so. Sorry. Sorry to the vapors. Please don't sue me. Sorry for making a joke that must have been made a bazillion, trillion, million times before. But seriously, what does it take to learn Japanese? That's a good question. And I guess I'm reasonably qualified to answer it. What gives me that authority? Well, a few things, I'd say. For one... I have passed the second highest level Japanese language proficiency exam. Uh, officially, it's known as the Nihongo no Ryokushiken. Uh, in English, that is the Japanese language proficiency test. Exciting name, I know. I took the old version many years ago before they rejiggered it to make it more difficult, I guess. That's what I heard. Um, I'm not sure, though. I haven't taken it since. So I can't say with 100% certainty. So admittedly, I'm not the most qualified person. I could have EQ on the new version rather than NIQ on the old version. But, you know, JLPT2, still a pretty good, you know, qualification to say, hey, this guy knows at least something about learning Japanese. I really think so. (laughs) Anyway, um... Another thing that I think qualifies me to talk about learning Japanese, I really think so. Okay, sorry, last time I'll do that. In fact, uh, so yeah, what else qualifies me to talk about learning Japanese is the fact that I have lived here for nearly 16 years and live most of my life using the language. I have opened bank accounts. I have called insurance companies. I've even gotten jobs using my Japanese language ability. So I think I know something about this language and how to learn it. But it wasn't always this way for me, of course. Um, I started learning Japanese in university to go along with the Asian history that I was studying. And there were the Waseda students who were coming to to my school, coming to Lawrence University. Uh, You can go and listen to episode two, Why Japan, to hear more about that. Um... Yeah, so I started learning Japanese as a third-year university student. We had classes every morning, Monday through Friday, for a full year. We had a small class. I'm trying to remember. There were, I think there might have been 10 of us or so. I was, but it was a small class. Um, small university, new program. So we had a small class. So there was a lot of student-professor one-on-one time, which is really important When you're learning language in a university or classroom setting, it's really useful to have that one-on-one professor-student time. And it's not like there were a lot of chances to go out and use Japanese around Appleton, Wisconsin. I mean, no disrespect, but it's kind of a small town. Not teeny tiny, but it's not exactly, you know, little Tokyo or nothing. Of course... There were all the Waseda students that we could practice with, but they were in the U.S. trying to work on their English. 
which, before you know, we got to be honest, was much better than our Japanese at that point. But I do remember trying to use my limited Japanese with the Waseda students from time to time. You know, not a lot, but you know, just little very basic things. One thing I will always remember is that my roommate from Japan, from Waseda, Kotaro. So Kotaro, for some reason, he taught me the word kayui. Kayui means itchy. Why he thought I should know that word, I have no flippin' clue. But I always remembered it. I've always known the word kayui ever since Kotaro taught it to me back however many years ago that is now. Obviously, at this point, it's a pretty simple word for me, and one that I use with some regularity. But, yeah, kayui. There you go, Japanese. There's your Japanese word for the day. So I took Japanese my first year and also my second year of university. Um, Though as the Japanese program was new, and a professor was the only Japanese professor, and they were trying to not overload her teaching schedule, we only had Japanese three times a week with Professor Yamagata our second year. So first year we had five days a week, second year three days a week with Professor Yamagata. But our second year, we met once a week with Mitsushi, who was one of the Waseda students who he decided to stay for a second year. And Mitsushi worked as our language tutor. So we'd have tutoring conversation sessions once a week with him. And there were more Waseda students, of course, my fourth year of university as well. And so we had more chance to learn odd, less textbooky Japanese. Um, for example, we learned sake nome, which means drink as an alcohol, as in a command to drink alcohol. It was more or less kind of a joke. It was more of, it was more of a joke than anything else, but... There was one Waseda student who all of the other Waseda students would say this to. They would say to him, sake nome, at the parties and weekend gatherings. And if you don't know anything about Japanese culture, especially university age, drinking is pretty big in Japanese culture. Like I say, sake nome, that's another, there you go, drink, drink your alcohol now. Um, There's another, the, the weird Japanese we picked up from our Waseda friends. So, yeah, two years of uh, university-level Japanese using the Genki textbook series. So if anyone is looking for a Japanese language text, uh, that's the one I used, Genki 1 and Genki 2. Um, they're, they're, I liked them. I thought they were pretty good, at least in the classroom setting um, with the professor we had. I think they worked well. Obviously, I have learned a lot of Japanese beyond them, but they were a good foundation for me to get started with uh, my Japanese learning. And so then I moved to Japan for the JET program, program with an E because British English, even though the Japanese English education tends to favor American English, but who cares? Why am I using so many exclamations? I don't know and I don't care. But anyway, uh, yeah, JET program with an E. Uh, the program E. I took the JET correspondence course when I moved here. Um, so JET offered, I think it was three years, and I was able to just start on the second, or second, I think, the second level of their correspondence course. Um, and at this point, my Japanese was good enough to have some very simple, basic conversations, 
at least if I took my dictionary, I, I have a little electronic dictionary that I would carry around all the time when I first moved here. And it was, it was good enough, my Japanese was good enough that with my dictionary in hand to look up the words I didn't know, I could have a basic conversation. But things like going to the bank or dealing with anything with my finances, it made me want to cry, like literally. I remember one time when I came here pretty early, I was had to do something at the bank. And I was so frustrated by my inability to figure out what I needed to do and what I was trying to do that I, I wanted to cry. I went home and I was just almost in tears because I was so frustrated because I couldn't communicate. Mind you, I'd only been in Japan, you know, I had two years of Japanese in university plus a couple months living in Japan. And so my exposure, my exposure to Japanese language was still not that extensive. And so, like I say, I, I was being very hard on myself, but that's, you know, pretty typical of me. I, I tend to be hard on myself about those kind of things. So at that point, my Japanese was pretty, you know, it, was, it wasn't great. It was decent for, you know, the absolute minimum conversation, but nothing beyond that. So this seems like a good time to take a break from my story and talk about what is it about the Japanese language and what is it like and what, is, what makes it so difficult for many, many English speakers who are learning Japanese, I really think so. Okay, really, sorry, that was really, really the last time I'll make that joke. Promise. But what is it about Japanese that makes it so hard for English speakers to learn? It, Japanese is often included in the lists of the, you know, the most difficult languages for English speakers to learn. The quick aside, there's no such thing as a difficult language to learn. Just, it's difficult for speakers of a certain language to learn, right? Because apparently Koreans tend to learn Japanese pretty easily. You know, English speakers can usually learn languages like Dutch or German relatively easily. You know, if you speak Russian, you can probably learn most of the other Slavic languages pretty easily. So it's relative to your language is something easy or difficult to learn. So there's no such thing as a language that is just absolutely difficult for everyone. It depends on what your basis is. So anyway, Japanese is included on most lists of the, you know, the 10 most difficult languages for English speakers to learn, things like that. The Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center, which is a language learning institute run by the United States Department of Defense, categorizes Japanese as a level four language. Level four is their most difficult category. I think it's in there with things like Arabic, uh, Chinese, I think is in there, but Chinese, that's another issue. There's a bazillion Chinese languages, but Chinese, you know, let's, let's just call Mandarin, the standard Mandarin is in that list of most difficult languages to learn, according to this Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center. And I think I get where that comes from. A lot of it, I mean, not all of it, but I think a big part of it is the writing systems. Yes, plural. There are three writing systems that you need to, uh, you need to learn to fully process written Japanese. There's kanji. Now, those are the characters that are borrowed from Chinese. The word kanji literally means Chinese character. Kan, Chinese, ji, character. Although there are actually some kokuji, which are national characters thrown in, characters that were invented in, J in Japan. 
that have no corresponding character in Chinese. And so these were not imported from China and modified, but they still fall under the, the banner of kanji, just because those are the those are the ones that you think about when you think of Chinese or Japanese writing. These are the most complex characters. They're the ones that people always screw up when they get tattoos of Chinese or Japanese words. These are kanji. Most of the characters are the... Uh, not all of them, I say, should, let me go back there. Many of the characters are in the exact same form as the original Chinese. But many others have undergone changes in both China and Japan. And so not all the characters exist in both languages anymore. And even if they do ex exist, they may look very different. So you can't just go back, go over to China and read everything if you're Japanese and vice versa. The further back you go in both languages, like uh, further back in time, I should say, you go in both languages, the more similar the characters become. So everyday standard kanji, the ones that you need to know to basically process daily life, they number 2,136 with 400, oh, sorry, 4,388 readings. Wait, what? So let's stop and unpack that a bit. The official Zhouyo um, Kanji, regular use Chinese characters, is a list that is uh, determined by the Ministry of Education. And there are over 2,000 characters on that list. So in theory, by the time you finish senior high school in Japan, you will have learned all of these characters. Maybe not production, maybe you can't write every character, but you should be able to recognize all those 2,136 characters. But what about the 4,388 readings? Well, many of the characters, in fact, nearly all of the characters have multiple ways to read them. So usually one character, uh, one, char one of the readings of a character is based on the traditional Japanese language, while the second reading is a modified version of the Chinese reading. So let's take an example. Manabu. Manabu means to study or learn. So manabu is the Japanese or kunyomi reading. However, that same exact character can be read gaku. And this is usually in compounds like gengo gaku, the study of languages, also known as linguistics. Gaku is the Chinese reading, or the uh, onyomi. Now, of course, you can't just go to China and read it the same way because this is a modified Chinese uh, reading be, be, uh, because just the, t the sounds that Chinese and, and Japanese make are very different, the two languages. They make different sounds, so you can't have the exact same reading. And so... You have these onyomi and kunyomi, the Chinese and Japanese readings. And this goes on for all the kanji. So that's how you get 4,388 readings of the standard everyday kanji. And this, some of, the, some of these kanjis have literally half a dozen readings. And so now you can start to see why reading Japanese can be a bit of a bear. So writing kanji is its own set of issues. Most characters are made by fewer than 10 brush strokes or pen strokes. 
but in, I mean, English, we don't think about the number of strokes, but for example, like a capital A typically is three brush, three pen strokes, right? You have the, the, the two horizontal and then the, the one, uh, sorry, the two diagonals and then the one horizontal. So you got the three pen strokes for a letter, capital letter A. And in writing kanji, both in China and Japan, you have to think about how many brush strokes, how many pen strokes it takes to write a character. And I say, most characters have fewer than 10 brush or pen strokes, but some of them can be hugely complex. For example, the word for depression in Japanese, yutsu, is made up of two kanji. The first character has 15 brush strokes, so it's a, already a pretty difficult character. The second character has 29 brush strokes. So if you want to write in kanji, yutsu, the word for depression in Japanese, you need to make 44 distinct brush strokes. Now, these days, more and more young people are forgetting how to write these complex kanji because they're typing everything on their phones or on their computers a little less, but mostly their phones. And so they're forgetting how to write these complex kanji. And that's an issue we could talk about some other day, not today. So kanji, that's the first writing system. Well, I should say it's the last system, as in it's the third system that children in Japanese schools start learning, and with good reason, I think you can understand. So the other two writing systems are closely related to one each other, to one another. I can talk. The other two systems are closely related to one another. They are hiragana and katakana. These are the syllabaries. Uh, see, there's that word. You remember? Remember? Huh? Yeah. So a syllabary is similar to an alphabet, except that each character represents a mora. Now, a mora is a linguistic term that is close in meaning, but not exactly the same. It's, it's almost the same as a syllable. So TLDR version, syllabary, each character represents a syllable. So hiragana and katakana have 46 characters each. While they're, they are very different in appearance, they are identical in sound. Now, why, pray tell, does Japanese have two more or less identical writing systems? Okay, well, not identical. I mean, the Venn diagram of their forms is two circles that are not in contact at all. While the Venn diagram of their sounds they represent is a single circle. Why? Well, it's complicated. There's a lot of history, which I'll save for another day. So they're not identical, but they, they will say they're seemingly redundant. The usage is what's different. Hiragana typically gets used for Japanese words. And it's often in, like attached to a kanji, the kanji as a, an affix. Like that's the part that you might uh, conjugate was probably written in hiragana. And that is the first way that children in, J in school in Japan learn to write. They learn hiragana. And hiragana is a very loopy script compared to all the other ways of writing. It has lots of curved lines and, and kind of circular shapes. Katakana, which is a much more angular script, lots of sharp angles, is used for loan words into Japanese or for emphasis. The same way that English writing uh, might use 
italics or bold fonts, katakana can be used that way in Japanese. Katakana also gets used, for some reason, for lots of vegetables, even though the name is not a loan word, it has a kanji, but yeah, for some reason they like to write a lot of vegetables in katakana. Don't ask me why, that one I have not figured out. I'm sure if I looked it up I could figure it out at some point. Maybe I'll do that sometime and I'll come back and share that with you. But, um, so yeah, it, katakana is primarily used though for loan words. So when I write my name in Japanese, it's usually in katakana. So those are the three writing systems in Japanese. You have you know, say your kanji, the, the very complex ones borrowed from China, and then you have these two syllabaries, hiragana and katakana. And so you can see why, you can start to see why a lot of English speakers consider Japanese to be super difficult, and that's not even talking about the grammar. So let's talk about the grammar. At least just a little bit. So Japanese is a topic prominent language, which is very different from English. So the topic is not the same as the subject. The topic of a sentence when translated in English can sometimes be the subject, but sometimes it's the object. So as a result, word order is very different. English sentences, the typical word order is subject, verb, object. You might hear this referred to as SVO. The object obviously doesn't always need to be there in English, right? We don't always have a subject, verb, object. Sometimes we just have subject, verb. You know, so very simple sentence, I subject through verb, the ball, object. I threw the ball, SVO. Japanese, by contrast, is a subject, object, verb language. And it's the subject that is often omitted, not the object. So if I want to take that I threw the ball and translate it into Japanese, watashi wa boro nageta. I, subject, the ball, object, through, verb. I, the ball, through. So that's the S-O-V order. And very often, you would just say boro nageta. You would get rid of that watashi wa. The, the, the subject, we just get rid of. We don't need it. Boro nageta. Verb, oh, sorry, object, verb. The ball through. Boro nageta. In Japanese, that makes perfect sense. And that means I threw the ball. So yeah, you can see the word order, what gets omitted, very different than English. And there are some other differences that make Japanese a lot different than English structurally and grammatically. And suffice to say, English and Japanese are very far removed from one another gram grammatically. And like I said, besides all the, obviously, yes, vocabularily. Vocabularily? Vocabulary is also very different, too. I mean, in fact, some linguists consider Japanese and Ryukyuan, the, the native language of Okinawa, which is unfortunately in dire straits. It may go extinct in the near future, which is very sad. Um, we can talk about Japanese linguistic uh, uh, colonialism some other day. But, um, yeah, so Japanese Ryukyuan, they might be, according to some linguists, well, not exactly language isolates, because there's the two languages. So they can't be true isolate, like Basque. Basque language has no relatives, as far as anyone can tell. That's called a language isolate. No related languages. There are some people, some linguists think that Japanese and Ryukyuan are unrelated to any other language. So it may be a case that there is a kind of a dual, uh, uh, say, 
dual isolates. It's a little weird, but something like that. So yeah, Japanese is kind of its own, its own thing. So I could go on more. I'm not going to go on for now. Uh, if, if people are interested, I might talk more about Japanese grammar um, and the like at some point. But that, we'll stop there for on the, the grammar right now. Uh, more generally, if you're interested in this sort of thing, I do want to recommend there's uh, a very interesting podcast. So if you like language, structure, and that kind of thing, I recommend checking out it's, it's a very well-established podcast called Lexicon Valley. And in it, uh, John McWhorter, he's a linguist and professor at, I think, Columbia University. He talks about all sorts of things related to languages, uh, etymology, language family, linguistic evolution, all sorts of good stuff. I highly recommend it. Um, yeah, check it out. Link, uh, Lexicon Valley. Uh, it's, host, it's Slate, I think, hosts it. Um, so yeah, look it up. Good stuff. So back to my story, back to the story at hand here. So how do you get to the point where you can navigate this language that has three writing systems, a grammar that's drastically different than English, and really isn't used much outside of Japan? So how do you get to the point where you can navigate this comfortably and pretty easily? Well, you live here. Yeah, that's the big secret. I moved to Kisakata, a small community in rural northern Japan where there weren't a lot of English speakers. I didn't go to Akita City, the big city, up, you know, an hour north. I didn't go very often to get together with the other people in the jet programmy. I stayed in my little town, and I went to the bar in town. I made friends with the drunks. Okay, they're not drunks. They're my, my good. They're my good friends still. But they were the people who frequented the Jolly Roger on weekends. Yay, pirate bar in rural Japan. Woohoo, Jolly Roger. Um... So yeah, my friends were the people who frequented the Jolly Roger on weekends, and most of them didn't really speak much English at all. And so yeah, bar, a little bit of the old liquid courage, as my high school science teacher used to call it, that, that liquid courage can go a long way in improving your language learning because it lowers your inhibitions, which means you are less worried about making mistakes. So you try to speak which is how you get better at a language. And then I started dating Japanese women, usually ones who didn't speak a whole lot of English, so I had to use Japanese to communicate in my love life, and if that's not a big motivating factor, I'm not sure what would be. And slowly, just through sheer attrition, just the sheer volume of Japanese in my daily life, I mean... I wanted to have a fulfilling time in my everyday life, and that required me to use Japanese. And so through all that, I finally got to the point where I could read short novels in Japanese, which led me to read to try reading more difficult novels in Japanese, including a bunch of um, Murakami Haruki, uh, who incidentally, he uses fairly simple language in his writing, even though his ideas and stories are not simple. He, he's kind of like Hemingway a little bit in that regard. So yeah, I get to the point I can finally read, like I can read novels now in Japanese. And so this, and this is the thing that any language educator will tell you. The key is exposure. The more you engage with the language, the more you can improve your ability to use the language fluently. And I, I shouldn't have used that word. I, 
Don't ask me if I'm fluent. I mean, it's a fairly meaningless word, fluent. How do you define fluent? What makes you fluent in a language? Everyone will set the standards somewhere different. So it's kind of a bad question to think about when you're learning a language. Am I fluent? Don't ask yourself that question. Ask yourself, can I do X, Y, or Z in the language I'm learning? That's a much better measure of your linguistic ability. Can I order food at McDonald's in Shanghai? Can I order food you know, in, at the, at the, at the um, McDonald's in Madrid or wherever? Can I open a bank account? Ask yourself, can I do something? That's a much better measure, way to measure have you learned the language. And it's the basis for the CEFR, uh, the Common European Framework of Reference for Languages. Um, it's the guideline that most language teachers in European languages use to assess a student's level. And it's based on a series of can-do statements. For example, the learner can express themselves spontaneously, precisely, differentiating finer shades of meaning even in the most complex situations. That's level C2, the highest level. That's They call that mastery or proficiency. And say that goes up to C2, you can go all the way down to A1. The student can interact in a simple way provided the other person talks slowly and clearly and is prepared to help. It's a more positive way to look at language learning, which is actually very important. A lot of language learning is about confidence. Obviously, that's not all it's about, but it does make a big, big difference. So rather than asking if you're fluent, ask realistic questions about your progress. And you'll be learning Japanese in no time. See, I didn't make the joke. I, I told you I promised and I didn't do it. All right, I'm in it there. So you can find the Twitter for this podcast at Just Another Cast. And you can email questions, comments, suggestions to just another jerk podcast at gmail.com. That's just another jerk podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. So on that note, I'm about peace.